Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I talk about the importance of cultivating stillness in one's life, especially in our frenetic modern world. We discuss the struggle to stay present when so much of our modern life pulls us out of the present moment. We explore the value of stillness and go over a few ways that you can cultivate it. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please rate us wherever you listen. If you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe to the channel and uh, click the like, the like button. I, or maybe I should say it like those YouTubers my kids watch. You could smash that like button, absolutely destroy that subscribe. Anyway. If you have feedback or requests for us, please uh, email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. You can go follow Reed, myself, and Novamind on Instagram if you'd like. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy our conversation on cultivating stillness. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal in the 1600s. I wish my name were Blaise. <laughs> it's not spelt like we that. We could but. change it. I mean, it's not too late. Reed's a perfectly acceptable name. At least your name's not Stephen. It's like Steve. I mean, I love my name. Thank you, Mom. But it's like the most generic dude name. I get, And my brother's name is Mike. We were all named after Bible characters. Stephen, Michael, Paul, James. Very biblical. Be like Steve. Mm -hmm. That's a whole meme. Is it? Like Steve, which Steve? Isn't it? Or am I am I thinking of another meme where some guy's holding a balloon? Anyway, I don't know. I could be wrong, but there is that quote from Is It Over the Hedge? Steve, it's a pretty name. Don't they name the hedge Steve? I don't know. Hmm. See, your name is cool. It is. <laughs> I embrace it. We're off to an excellent start. Excellent. <laughs> Remember, folks, uh, if you're avid listeners, we're doing our best to be as awkward as possible at our <laughs> for our launches. Um, so in that spirit, today we wanted to talk about this challenge that Blaze, our friend Blaze Pascal, tries to uh, point out with this often cited quote that stillness is hard. Just being with oneself mm -hmm. is difficult. He's a French philosopher, and I can't even remember what what era that was, 17-something? Yeah, 1650, yeah. something like that. But interestingly, about five, seven years ago, there was a study. It was University of Virginia, Harvard. They did this series of like a dozen experiments where they had people sit still in a room alone, mm. just like the quote. And I've I've been struck by that quote many, many times over the past decade. So when I saw this study, I was like, ooh, this will be interesting. Yeah. Um, so they took people of all ages and they put them in a room by themselves with nothing but their thoughts and their imagination. But they did different settings, like some of it was even at home, so they couldn't say it was just a scary room, and some of it, all ages. And uh, they asked them beforehand, um, about some of the alternatives. Would you rather do this or this? Um, would you rather shock yourself? Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, no way, I'd pay money to not get shocked. But it turns out that I think it was 67% of the men preferred getting administered a shock to sitting in the room alone for 15 minutes. <laughs> oh and about 33% of the women. Mm -hmm. So it makes me wonder, is that just uh, like 
intolerance of boredom? Is, is there there's yeah. something about their particular mindscape that is really, really intolerable to them that they'd rather <laughs> mix it up with some pain? I think the study is showing what we hear all the time in like work and clinical and day-to-day life settings. It's like, oh, I can't meditate. Oh, I hate to meditate. Oh, right. I can't sit still. Uh, because we're in such a frazzled, frenetic, frenzied society that mm. doesn't slow down. And it's hard to f- find stillness or it's it's a habit to not take moments of stillness. My guess is that it's never been harder because of what you just said, this, this sort of frenzies, frenzied, distracted world that we live in mm-hmm. to cultivate stillness or to be in stillness. But I mean, apparently back in the 1600s, it was hard too. Yeah. Um, and my guess is that for as long as human beings have had minds, like as soon as consciousness and self-awareness erupted into human con- into, into the human mindscape, as I keep calling it, um, that we had trouble with it, trouble managing it. Like the, the human mind is this thought engine and a lot of times our thoughts uh, don't make a lot of sense. A lot of times they're distressing. A lot of times they're not super connected to reality. Um, and so to be still is, I think, something you got to work at. Mm-hmm. And it's an age-old problem. I, I, I do think it's amazing that Pascal said that hundreds of years ago, and he'd probably get a good cosmic chuckle out of our situation these days of how hard it is to find stillness. Um, you know, I don't know if it's any harder. I like to think it's harder. My guess is that it is just because of like, I don't know the, the, I have noticed my own ability to be still has gotten weaker. Yeah. Uh, and I'm of that generation that I'm, I'm like old enough to know what it was like to not have the internet at my fingertips, to not have a smartphone, to not have a mm-hmm. cell phone for that matter. Yeah. Um, but young enough to have gotten it early enough in my life that I'm I'm still kind of a digital native. You know, I, I've had I had a, a cell phone. I think my first cell phone I got in my early 20s and then got a smartphone in my late 20s um, to now like feel the effects. I know what it's like to go through developmental period of my life with this stuff. So as an example, I was brushing my teeth the other day and got bored and reached for my phone. Like while I'm <laughs> brushing my teeth, like two minutes, the dentist tell you to brush your teeth and I couldn't handle it, you know, or I was trying to read a book the other day. I was trying to read a book, uh, called it's a book on spirituality. What is it called? Oh shoot. I forgot. Um, but so I'm reading this book and I'm, and I get kind of bored just halfway through the first page. So I put on my headphones and I start listening to a podcast and I get kind of bored. So then I'm playing a cell phone game while listening to a podcast. While still trying to read. <laughs> well, so during the advertisements on the game, cause I'm too, too cheap to pay to take away the ads. Mm. I'm trying to read the book while also listening to the podcast. And it, and then I was like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. Yeah. Let's just, be still for a moment. And I, I could tell as soon as I'm still and it's quiet, all this stuff erupts into my consciousness. Yeah, it, it brings up an interesting thought or distinction for me of how we talk about getting out of our heads and into the here and now, mm-hmm. right? We're the ideal, big focus on mindfulness. Um, and we talk about, uh, you know, being instead of thinking. Mm-hmm. But in this like automatic response there is also the risk of laying down habits that take a big effort to undo like 
reaching for your phone over and over while you're reading or brushing your teeth. Um, if you do that without awareness, mm -hmm. that can become a pattern that's laid down that uh, before long, it's just happening over and over and a little harder to break. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it reminds me of the often quoted saying that the mind uh, makes a beautiful servant but a terrible master yeah. or the monkey the idea of the monkey mind that's so often talked about in like yoga classes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah we talk about the monkey mind in therapy a lot too just because it's it's often the product of a lot of those thoughts i was referencing earlier that can that are not super connected to reality you know we, yeah. we talked about um, cognitive behavioral therapy the approach to to therapy informed by sort of stoicism and um and the cognitive theory that a lot of your distressing emotions are caused by thoughts and that these thoughts can mm -hmm. be distorted and they can be a product of kind of the, the quote unquote monkey mind, this, this chatter that's running in the background. And one of the ways to deal with, to, to deal with that is to bring awareness to it. Yeah. I think like you're talking about. Yeah. To become the observer or to quote, I'm at risk for going off on yoga tangents on this topic <laughs> big time. But to yeah. put it in yoga speak, the seeker becomes the seer. Um, and, uh, you know, whoever, <laughs> whatever the uh, answer is on the debate of is it harder right now? Because I see your point. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree one bit. And it's certainly harder for me to, my endurance with reading physical paper books is different than it was 10, 20 years ago. Right. I'll admit it. And something I'm, I'm aware of, I'm also aware of the fact that every time I get in my car and pull up at a stoplight and look over, if I happen to be not looking down at my phone, mm -hmm. <laughs> look over and there's someone looking at their phone or you look at the crosswalk, um, whether they're stopped and waiting or walking across the street, they're likely head, neck, tilted forward, looking at their phones. It's like a zombie apocalypse out yeah. there, um, eating away at our attention. Yeah, I saw this... this uh piece of art where somebody had taken all these photographs in public spaces where everyone's looking down at their phones and they, they just removed the phones like Photoshop. Yeah. Out the phones. That's awesome. So it's everyone staring into this vacant palm in their hands and it was kind of, you know, thought provoking like, thinking man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But instead of thinking, they're just sacrificing their attention to what this digital void. And sometimes it's not just a void. It's not random TikToks or Reddit threads or whatever. Yeah. It's people you know, but it's not people who are with you now. So I, I love the title of you know Ram Dass's book, "Be Here Now," or yeah. you know Eckhart Tolle, "The Power of Now." Um, so what does it mean to bring attention or awareness, like you said, to the present moment? I think you need stillness in order to do that. Um, I don't know. Maybe we can dive into that. Like how how do we do that? How do we cultivate stillness and bring awareness to the present moment? You know, <laughs> there are complicated answers and there are really simple ones. And, mm -hmm. you know, starting with the simple is just um, taking a moment to pause or just remembering to slow down, remembering what we're up against in this, in this hectic uh, day and age we live in mm -hmm. and with the distractions all around us. Like you could be reached at any time, day or night, probably even while you're sleeping um, by your mom or coworkers or mm -hmm. whoever. And, uh, yeah, that's certainly new. Like you said, I didn't grow up with cell phones, certainly. Right. Um, 
But yet the problem is age old and it's, it's way bigger than cell phones. It's not just Blaise Pascal in the 1600s. Look at like, well, I'm going into yoga land again. Yeah. Um, a couple thousand years ago, there's this guy named Patanjali. He wrote the Yoga Sutras, 196 little threads, which is what sutras means, um, about uh, the path to enlightenment. And number two, the first one is essentially be here now. Uh, it's like Atha Yoga Shashanam or something like that. Mm -hmm. And now yoga. But number two, the second one, which is often quoted as the definition of yoga, it says like... Um, Yoga Chitta Vritti Narodaha. Yoga is the settling of the mind into silence. Mm. And that's, you know, one of the biggest aims of it is to not empty the mind. That's kind of impossible, depending on how you define it. But settling into silence or letting like that shaken up snow globe just settle down so you can see through the water, see things more clearly. It makes me think of uh, consider the lilies, you know, the the quote attributed to Jesus. That's in the Bible, right? It's been a long time since I've been in my scriptures, but yeah, uh, you know, they toil not, neither do they spin, that they'll take care of themselves. Pay attention mm -hmm. to what's in front of you right now, the task. Yeah, it's a beautiful idea or sentiment. And an um, old one, right, is the point I think I hear you making. Like yeah. It's... it's uh, Although we have a lot of things competing for our attention now, this has been a problem that is a, what I keep trying to say here is that it, it's a problem that is a feature of human consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so like I often say on this podcast, it, that is a good reason to have compassion for yourself, for your struggle. It's why I, I often self-disclose too on this podcast and talk mm -hmm. about my, my own foibles because none of us are perfect. You and I are mental health professionals. We deal in improving people's mental health every day. And yet we struggle with our own mental health all the time. And this is one of the struggles. Yeah, big time. And um, looking at these people, we draw um, some wisdom from like looking at the Stoics as mm -hmm. another example. They did not have Facebook, but I still like to think about what would they say if uh, someone said, get on Facebook, man? Um, they'd probably look at this thing and be like, okay, why? Why would I put this into my life um, and make a conscious choice? But it brings up <laughs> to get back to your question of what do we do about the monkey mind? Mm -hmm. There was another study. This is very recent, um, like two days ago, <laughs> it came out on um, meditation they studied uh, two forms of meditation and a control group with no meditation to see what it does to your automatic behaviors and your ability to consciously chart a course or decision of, do I reach for my phone while brushing my teeth or not? Mm -hmm. And they studied, one was open meditation, um, focusing, meaning focusing on thoughts and emotions as they float on through without getting attached. The next one was like like a focused meditation on breath or a candle wick was another option. Yeah. And then the control group. And um, the open one did best at this, um, probably because we're talking about bringing awareness to our thoughts and then um, 
as a result, changing behavior consciously. Um, but still, the, uh, the breath-focused meditation was huge because that anchor breath, uh, in a similar way to like someone bangs a huge gong, your thoughts immediately like zoom, that takes over and channels this chaotic monkey mind into the sound. Um, And so by doing some kind of meditative practice, there was awareness and ability to to chart a course consciously. I think open meditations are a great way to cultivate awareness of your mind, like to learn how it gets distracted, how uh, the kinds of distractions it likes to get Mm -hmm. into. And then anchored meditations are good at training your mind. So there's yeah. the ones that get you acquainted with your mind, and then there's the ones that help you train your mind. Like, I love breath because it's right there, and you can always return to it. Or you can have an image in your mind or a sound. It could be a five senses meditation, but some kind of anchor yeah. where, okay, now I can tell I'm not focused on my breath anymore. And like, uh, I use Sam Harris's um, Waking Up app for meditation. I really like it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he says, when you've noticed your attention has wandered, simply begin again. And I love the Mm -hmm. begin again cue as a meditation cue. Like, okay, I'm not doing it wrong. I'm not Mm -hmm. bad at it. It doesn't say beat yourself up. Right. (laughs) If you find yourself distracted, you suck. You suck at meditation. It's over. Yeah. Give up. No. And even those thoughts would be another thing to notice, you know, in the spirit of mindfulness meditation. Yeah. Notice those thoughts, notice how they feel, and then simply return to your anchor. Begin again. Yeah. I like that. And I notice it. That's... That's why I love these practices, whether it's getting on a meditation cushion or any way you want to do it. You could be laying, standing, sitting, walking, anything, or getting on a yoga mat because, like, for me, it really is true that the breath is the brain's remote control. The breath is a gateway to my subconscious, like a window into what's going on there. And sure, you can learn to tune in in other ways and... They're all fascinating, but having these quick and easy tools to get out of the monkey mind and back into the moment uh, can come in so handy. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, we can get caught up in overthinking and stories and getting yanked out of the present moment into the future, future tripping, Mm -hmm. rehashing the past, and uh, then you're not fully living. Like you were talking about with Ram Dass, you are... One step removed, the distance being your thoughts from actually fully experiencing your life and being here now. My suspicion is that that is what we're doing with most of our time. Yeah. At, at least I can speak for myself. Like I, I am not perfectly uh, in the present moment, probably most of the time every day. And the I think yeah. the way you improve the ratio of present moment time to up in your head, future tripping stuck in the past is through deliberate training. So like, like with any skill, I think mindfulness is a skill that you like that you have to practice. You have to train it. And the time to train is not when the enemy is at the gates. You got to do it Mm -hmm. every day. Um, so yeah, it's, it's training and then bringing the intent to be present to everyday moments. So you can do it at any moment. Mm-hmm. If you want, wherever you are right now, bring your attention to that moment. You can do it with all your senses, you know, feel your feet, feel your hands, 
Look at the colors and the shadows and the, and the shapes around you. Smell whatever is around you. If, if you're around teenage boys, that's a, that's a challenging one. <laughs> I have personal experience, but be mindful of the stench of your pubescent yeah. child. And it's, it's true. You probably heard the saying, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Mm. And there are these studies about um, the average person definitely does spend more than 50% of their time in a wandering mind state associated with unhappiness. And that's when your default mode network, a.k.a. the neurobiological seat of the ego mm. or uh, the monkey mind is running amok, overactive. And then in other times of like presence and feeling some of those, feeling and embodying like love or bliss or a flow state, for example, is the opposite. Default mode turns down and uh, like it does on psychedelics. Psychedelics, meditation, and flow states, you know, at least the, the things that they've studied with people stuck in MRIs, um, prayer, some kind of spiritual engagement. Um, yeah, the default mode network tends to go quiet and you get activity in other parts of the brain. And mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons why we like psychedel the, the promise of psychedelic-assisted therapies um, is because it can put you in this very present oneness with everything kind of state that grants you perspective on mm -hmm. the wandering mind and how it causes suffering. Yeah. I, uh, one of my favorite Ram Dass stories, and I know I've shared many and you never have to apologize many, for a Ram Dass story. <laughs> many more to come. Yeah. Um, he talks about, um, I think it's in a lecture called the sacred in every day, mm -hmm. something like that. He talks about how on a psychedelic journey once he woke up from this, I like to call it trance of unworthiness. It's more of a Tara Brock term than mm -hmm. a Ram Dass, but he was going to see like psychiatrist, therapists, feeling sick, but then he wasn't finding the answers. But then he woke up to this situation he'd gotten himself in. He was just feeling like he didn't fit in anywhere. Mm. And these, for him, those messages, he had this aha moment of realizing they were just trying to tell him that he wasn't being him, his true self. Mm. And so it was amazing, transformative. He could see, he could see the oneness in everyone, that veil of separation kind of melted away. But then he came back down <laughs> from the trip and he's back in this body, back in some of the same feelings. And he says that's when he kind of started moving towards his journey to India, for example, and talks about how William James writes about how you can access these transcendent or altered states in a number of different ways. Like it could be singing, chanting mantras, or spinning around over and over on a dance floor uh, dozens and dozens of times, or... Um, any number of other practices to get to that place of uh, seeing our, our oneness, our shared humanity. And he even talks about how you might be on a channel that talks about that, like we're all brothers and sisters, or you might be on a, another channel that talks about uh, we're all part of an ocean expressing ourselves as waves and mm -hmm. we just think we're separate, but we're not. Um, but it's that separation at the root of so much suffering that kind of starts to melt away in those states. Yeah. 
I'm trying to think of the times where I have felt like I've been in a flow state uh, are often times where I've been doing something challenging, but the level of challenge like just meets the razor's edge between too hard for me, like outpaces my mm-hmm. skills yeah. um, and or too easy for me, like hits that sweet spot. Uh, skiing, actually. I uh, mm-hmm. recently went skiing and I was on a run that was challenging enough, but not so challenging that I was terrified. But I was also nervous. I don't know. I just hit this nice wavelength of uh, being just completely in my body, completely in the terrain, um, Stephen Coulter in his book, the art of impossible talks about this, talks about flow mm-hmm. states and his example was surfing, but yeah, where there's a high degree of concentration and there's complete absorption in that like ultimate single tasking, one mindedness. And there, it might not feel like there's much effort going on, but there's effort. I think it's balanced with ease. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got this, uh, this complementary balance that you've sunk into of this state of complete concentration. And, um, yeah, a lot of practices will get you there deliberately. Like whether it's a Kundalini yoga class, doing the same thing over and over with your breath or following a set sequence in another style of yoga, Link to your breath over and over and repeat it until you're out of the head into the experience. You're flowing. You're you're plugging into that state on demand, or whether it's people going in for a psychedelic experience or tune up um, or singing, worship. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It seems like you have to be very very present in order to have those experiences and not engaged in in metacognition, thinking about your thinking, where you have. Mm-hmm. We've been calling the monkey mind or the default mode network or the ego or whatever it is that is commenting on you. It's like, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. What if something bad happens? Oh, remember when this happened in the past? You really do have to be plugged into the present moment, totally focused, I think, in order to experience that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's it's a risk of, um, there's a risk of overcomplicating it, I think, because in reality, everything is here in this moment, and we could go infinitely deep, even just by tuning into ourselves. Like, you know, whether it's feeling, like you said, the feet on the ground or hearing the hum of the room, but going deeper and deeper, like sensing into the beating of your own heart, or even like the whirling of electrons or like the energy ripples that are settling, um, you know, may seem esoteric, but it's universally magical when someone engages in that to, uh, you know, see what happens when you really tune in Mm -hmm. and and really uh, enter that state of stillness. It's amazing. One of my favorite meditations that... uh tries to give a person an experience of what you're talking about is the no self meditation Mm -hmm. where basically you're trying to go further back in consciousness to try to find the origin of awareness. (laughs) Good luck. And the joke is that it like, if you're trying to like what Sam does in his, in some of his meditations is like, look for the looker. That's his Mm -hmm. cue, which is such an obnoxious cue. Cause I'm like, I'm never in that quick moment. He'll say, as soon as I snap, look for what's perceiving 
what you're perceiving. Chasing your tail, but yeah. it's a it's a really fun exercise. And it really, I mean, if if you're deliberate with it and you take take some time with it, it puts you into this in an ego dissolving state without a psychedelic on board, mm-hmm. where you realize that you are just awareness. Like that's all that there is. There isn't a, a thing perceiving. There's just perception. This wide open container of being and awareness. It's trippy. <laughs> I am loving awareness. Yeah. One of my favorite mantras. Yeah. A la Ram Das, of course. They've there's even a song made out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other ways you like to tune into the present moment and cultivate stillness? There are so many ways, um, and a couple that come to mind are, well, I may have told this story before, but oh well. It's my first time ever going to Europe. I went to France, and it was a fairly young lad uh, coming from our Western culture. This is in the era before cell phones, but still, like... We were still driven to distraction, you know, by um, cities and the Western world and busyness and everything else. But I get on a train. I'm sitting there. I buy a sandwich, and I'm looking out the window, just fascinated by the views, multitasking, like wrapping, unwrapping the sandwich, taking bites, soaking it in, looking around, people watching. But then my people watching um, leads me to the two nuns sitting right across from me who were eating their lunch in silence and completely absorbed in it. Like the way they unfolded the napkin and set out the components of their lunch, it made it feel like a sacred ritual. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was just like absorbed in it. Of like, I could feel it. It was palpable, like their presence. Um, it was wild yeah. and um, felt like such a contrast to what I was doing. Um, and uh, fast forward to another, my f- first and only trip to India that has stuck with me like in almost daily revisitations or insights since, but like in an ashram, uh, not just the meditating and the yoga, but the meal time with the uh, in silence, like just eating and meditating on this bowl of lentils and mm. these grains of rice, um, was mind blowing. Like what, how it can change a moment by being fully present for it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. the The first exercise I was ever taught in grad school. Um, about mindfulness was a mindful eating exercise. Was it a raisin? I think it was uh, a peanut M&M or something. Uh, um, that's trippy. Yeah, because <laughs> it's got layers and different yeah. textures. And so if anybody and listening doesn't, yeah, doesn't know what we're talking about, so the, the exercise is you have a food item. In my case, it was like an M&M. Put it in your mouth. Well, first, like you look at it, and you're just looking at all the texture and the color and mm-hmm. the light, and you're noticing any urge come up in you to eat it, you might notice your mouth starts to water and, and then you, then you pick it up and you do the same thing, feel it, put it in your mouth and you don't chew, just hold it in your mouth. <laughs> this water are you even talking about? Mm. You hold it in your mouth and you notice the saliva build up. You notice the desire to chew it or swallow it. And, I mean, you, you take five minutes with this thing, right? And then you take one bite and that's it. 
and then you chew it up and then swallow and the aroma. And you just spend a lot of time with it. And you can translate that exercise really into your relationship with food generally. I mean, you can approach every oh, yeah. meal with, with slowness and mindfulness. And maybe as I'm talking, I'm thinking I need to start doing this more. The other day I ate a sandwich and it was three quarters gone before I realized it was three quarters. Who ate my sandwich? (laughs) Inhaled the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Consciousness and mindful eating. Oh yeah. And I I remember I was at an eating disorder conference several years ago where I signed up for a workshop on mindful eating, like MB dash eat was the framework. These are some folks out of, uh, Harvard and other institutions around there, but it was a lot of fun and has stuck with me uh, to this day where there's this process of checking in with yourself before you eat on like, how hungry am I? You can even get concrete about this on a scale of one to 10. Mm-hmm. How full am I? Or what is my level one to 10 of satiety? Mm-hmm. And then you begin and you're doing one thing at a time and you're savoring and contemplating. But mid meal, you can check in again on those on those two or sometimes three different levels or, or however you want to approach it. And then again, you can see, okay, how's my hunger now? And if you're eating slow enough, it, the body actually has time to give you signals about yeah. what it wants and needs and how it's doing. Yeah, it's one of the perils of eating fast is that you'll outpace your body's natural satiety cues, right? Enjoy it less. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can bring that that attitude of mindfulness and, and sort of deliberateness to a lot of things. Uh, there's this concept in the addiction treatment literature called urge surfing. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Where, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll take that mindfulness approach you're describing with food and you can apply it to anything. Like if you have an unhealthy relationship to alcohol and you notice mm-hmm. the urge to grab the bottle um, and you just spend time with that urge. And what, what we find is that, you know, urges like emotions are waves, they ebb and flow, and they typically Mm -hmm. won't stay at the peak for eternity. So if you can spend enough time with it, tolerate it, the discomfort, um, you'll find it flow. Yeah, no, I think that's a great practical tip and point is you can even set a timer too. Mm -hmm. if there's an urge to kind of go towards a rabbit hole of whatever it is, like a substance use or even a, uh, binge eating episode. And if you can sit with that, like you've been cultivating and you're learning to sit in a room alone, uh, you can ride the wave and surf it to the other side of almost anything. Yeah. 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 So then just a fun way to do this, um, for the listeners, the next time you want to, you reach for your phone, the next time you feel the urge to reach for your phone and it's not to make a phone call or send a message or whatever, just stop and surf that urge. Yeah. And then maybe mm-hmm. ask yourself, there's some fun questions you can ask yourself. Like, what am I trying to avoid right now? Or by reaching for my phone, what am I trying not to feel? Um, and there might not be direct answers to those questions, but they're fun questions for some introspection. Yeah. Uh, if I get up, it's you know the evening, I've already eaten what I need to eat for the day, and I get up and go to the pantry, is it because I'm hungry? Or am I trying not to feel something? And it could be as simple yeah. as, well, I'm trying not to feel bored. Um, and you know, it, the, the question is structured that way on purpose. It's not, well, cause I want to enjoy the sensation of eating this food item. It's no, what am I trying to stop, avoid, 
not feel by engaging in this behavior and just see what shows up for you. Yeah, I love that practice. It's kind of ties into the open meditation of just slipping into that observer state and watching the thoughts and feelings as they pass on by and tuning into the body sensations of, mm-hmm. because it really gets interesting. We start to realize that, oh yeah, because food, just using that example again, was the first thing we ever had to self-soothe and mm-hmm. was even trained culturally like, oh, fell off your bike, here's an ice cream mm-hmm. cone, <laughs> mm-hmm. don't cry, here's a treat. Um, those get linked and then when we start to enter these states of stillness and awareness, we start to see what has gotten linked. And But I love that practice and the question of like, why is this in my life? Why is this in my life? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it's not an easy one or a fast process in general, but you can certainly practice and lay down new ways of being and reacting, responding. Yeah. Yeah, the sort of why is this in my life self-reflection question. Stillness, folks, like cultivating a practice of stillness, not that you have to be still all the time, um, allows you to do an inventory like that. Like it it brings an awareness to the things that are in your life that could be literal things, objects or behaviors or patterns or people, relationships, um, that's really hard to create awareness around otherwise because life, the pace of life tends to be a little frenetic. Yeah. It's a good practice. Yeah. Um, when I first discovered meditation, I don't know, it was uh, 10, 15 years ago, um, I was struck by, well, how, I still remember it, like listening to cassette tapes on like Buddhist meditation while driving in my car on the I-15. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this person's guiding uh, practices. And I remember thinking, it's kind of funny that I'm doing this in my car. I'll just keep my eyes open and all that. But it was still amazing to be able to tune into like, oh, feel the sensation of your seat mm-hmm. underneath you or feel it like tune into the hum. And then what just started to melt away, I started to see, wait, my awareness, my perception is almost like a nice camera lens that you can focus in on something on demand and bouquet out the rest, blur Mm. it out. Um, But uh, that becomes so extremely useful to be able to soak it all in, um, but then direct your attention and concentration onto what you intentionally, purposely want to and not get pulled in every direction um, out of your control. That's a good Uh, point. That's a good point. So this practice, if I'm understanding what you're saying, like this practice can help you be more deliberate with your attention. So instead of the mind being the master, it's the servant, like you were saying earlier. You can, as you develop and cultivate awareness of your own mind and the ways it gets captured, um, you can then avoid that capture and instead point it and focus it on things like that camera lens you're talking about. Yeah. And open the aperture of your attention to things that you really want to fill the lens with. Yeah, without, uh, and the caveat is without too much of a struggle or fight. Mm-hmm. Because, like, if you get caught up in an inner battle, that's a whole other kind of turmoil. Mm. But learning to be gentle and not judgmental and do it with this compassionate awareness, you know. 
I've found is is the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you made that point because you could be tempted to take a very, you know, yang approach to this. Just is that the right one or is yeah. yin? Yeah, <laughs> I always forget and, which uh, one it is. Like getting smacked with a stick while you meditate. Yeah. There's a, maybe a place for it, but I'm just thinking of like taking this really aggressive self-discipline approach to your attention. I'm going to will myself to focus on, you know, mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z that, um, maybe there's a place for that, but, uh, not exactly what you're saying. What I hear you saying, bringing more of a loving, um, forgiveness, compassion to yourself as you try to direct your attention in the way we're talking about. Uh, because the energy spent um, in self-criticism is, in general, energy not well spent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of energy in the wrong direction of like putting yourself down or like, oh, I'm so stupid, I can't do this. It's, yeah, that's when you just simply begin again. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I like that, begin again. There are other practices for like self-reflection. I love, I love journaling. Oh, yeah. Um, journal free, just free journaling, dear diary, dear diary type journaling is great, but you can also have, you know, directed journaling. There's this, uh, product called the five minute journal and mm-hmm. really simple prompts, uh, great marketing by them to make a $25 bound journal that has these really simple prompts, but it's basically bookends your day with gratitude. So starting and ending with gratitude and then a reflection on sort of what are five things or three things or whatever it is that happened today that I really liked that happened? What are some things that I would change if I could? Um, so there are directed ways to journal and then sort of the non-directed ways, but I like that. Yeah. And any, uh, physical practice too can be really helpful as a reset or getting out of the head to the overthinking monkey mind and into the senses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I like to dabble in, well, beyond the yoga in like hand balancing, handstands mm. and things like that. Um, and I don't bust them out uh, at work too often. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I remember going to this, uh, when I was traveling once, uh, going to this handstand, hand balancing workshop mm-hmm. at some like training center and uh, going through this exercise of stringing together like a lot of cartwheels one after the other and how much that brings you into this flow state to try on this track (laughs) to string together 10 or 20 cartwheels Mm -hmm. one after another. Kind of like those repetitive physical practices, which so that was fascinating. But then this other exercise we were doing, uh, we were in a circle and this uh, this instructor coach had these wooden uh, rods that we each had uh, two of them. And you couldn't think or you'd lose the game. Mm. <laughs> but he would throw one at you, and you'd have to drop one and catch his. But the, the tricky part is he could also pretend to throw it, and if you dropped it, you're out. Interesting. Yeah, we should try it sometime. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> it's, crazy exercise. It's a lot of fun. After that, I had him at at home for a while, did them with some meditation groups for a mm-hmm. while or bring them to yoga class. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if you think you're gone, yeah. <laughs> but if you get into that state of like expansive awareness in the here and now, mm-hmm. um, out of the mind, you can just like use more of that, you know, intuition and automatic, right. uh, wisdom of response. 
Yeah, that makes me think about top performers like uh, musicians, athletes, and our com- our conversation earlier about flow. When you're overthinking it, you're usually underperforming, right? When when people, yeah. I played the the cello in high school and you know, I was in the orchestra, and I would have to practice a piece very deliberately and repetitively. Mm-hmm. But once I had it, right, then um, if I thought too hard about it, I would wouldn't play it as well as if I just sort of trusted my training and played it intuitively. Um, incidentally, this is just an aside. I, it, I would usually play it best after I slept on it. And there's some science about sleeping, consolidating um, repetitive skill and things like that, like a good night's sleep uh, helped solidify the training. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I would need to, you need to do the work and then you can trust your intuition after that. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, and what you said about sleep, it makes me think of integration, mm. not just psychedelic integration, but that's that's a kind of easy to grasp example that has relevance to the name of our podcast, right. but, but integrating anything. Like I was talking about my one trip to India that um, people had told me before, like there's one place I've traveled that I think about every day over and over since, and I've traveled many places, but one that stuck with me. And I didn't understand why at first they said it was India. So I went into this like, okay, is this is this going to uh, be the world's most memorable trip just right. by nature of where I'm going? Go but, to Narnia but or something? It was more of the reflection on it that made it uh, that brought the insights into um, a place where they could be useful. Mm. Like the the reflection throughout the moments of stillness, the writing that let me integrate some of these things and actually use them, revisit them, and just remind me that we do need to, whatever you're doing, like we need to take some time for stillness. Super important. I'm glad you, because that made me think of something I wanted to to mention in this topic of cultivating stillness. And that is that a lot of times we get caught up in like serial searching for yeah. answers and meaning. So like for me, it's audiobooks or podcast episodes. I'll listen to an audiobook and I'm like, wow, this was really good. And then I'm hitting play next. on the next audiobook. Or for a lot of people, it's um, some like for people who are way into plant medicine and psychedelic work, it's, you know, they, they go to one ayahuasca retreat, change their life, whatever. And then before they've had a chance to really s- spend time in reflection and integration, like you described, they're off to their next retreat or their next Tony Robbins event or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so these things are important. And by things, I mean, you know, ayahuasca retreats or, you know, your, your ketamine assisted therapy treatment or your impactful life-changing audio book that you're listening to, or this podcast episode that has obviously changed your life. Mm. Um, but you got to take the time. I'm speaking to myself as much as I am speaking to our audience. You got to take the time to reflect apply, integrate, if it's going to have a real meaningful difference. Where the rubber meets the road, where the secret sauce is of transformation. Uh, But it's so easy to crave the excitement of the actual trip or event Mm -hmm. and not leave the time and space, especially in this culture. 
But uh, yeah, that's some of my favorite advice that we've kind of settled on after working with so many people Mm -hmm. in these different ways is after that ceremony, after that session, leave some space for integration, leave some time and space for stillness and quiet uh, contemplation and writing and practices to support that. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And even when we were doing a group ketamine thing uh, not too long ago, I remember someone asked us, after I get my ketamine, can I go back to work right after? (laughs) And then uh, I, I thought it was great that we both kind of landed on this same answer of like, you know, let's talk about the value and the beauty of having a little time for this all to settle and and get absorbed. Yeah, especially with a, a psychedelic experience of any kind. And as, as we're trying in this psychedelic renaissance to figure out the best ways to bring the healing potential of psychedelic medicines to the modern Western, Western medical context, um, all the experts that I'm aware of uh, all the researchers, all the clinicians, all the trainers are underscoring the importance of this, of stillness, taking time, integration. Um, you know, when you, when you shake up the, the, the human mind, you need to let it, or like, like we've mentioned on the podcast, snow globe. Yeah, that's <laughs> snow globe. You need to let it settle first before you move forward too quickly. Yeah. Yep. The muddy water is cleared. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. by a little time Reed I think that's a good place to end excellent advice on stillness thanks for listening everybody thanks Steve until next time thank you dear listener for listening it means a lot to me Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.